You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2011. Today's episode is titled Best Practices. All consultants offer the same value proposition, wisdom. The mantra of the purported wisdom voiced by virtually every consultant is best practices. Best practices are deemed to emanate from principles that facilitate success. Success is generally defined in terms of money, influence, and fame, but in our culture, mostly in terms of money. If you desire true wisdom to run your organization, you need counsel and advice not based on traditional best practices, but based on best practices gleaned from a biblical worldview. Develop workers who are devoted to understanding and conducting business from a biblical worldview. This is how you will build an excellent organization delivering world-class value propositions to your customers and clients. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Four Most Important Things I Require from My Clients. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's pray here. Well, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study together and learn together. We ask that you would uh, guide and direct our conversation, and most of all, that you would speak to us, and we would have the ears to hear and a heart to obey. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you in this time, to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, I have been assigned the topic, the four most important things I require from clients. Um, please note that I was assigned this. I did not select this. And when I first got this, I uh, was perplexed a bit because I wanted to make it the, the ten most important things I require from my clients. So I had to make choices, and I, so I've tried to do that. But to set up this discussion, let's talk a little bit about the consulting world. And here's an illustration of this world. I received a letter from a lady uh, four or five months ago. And uh, this is the letter. It says, um, I would enjoy a discussion to see if there might be a, a partnership with your company and my expertise. I was with a container store for over 20 years. I'm currently the CEO of a small moving company. I continue to do consulting on leadership, best uh, people practices based on my philosophies, and would be would li- like to partner with a like-minded company. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, um, that what she, what I understood her to say is that she, her philosophy of consulting, is based on best practices that are pragmatically discerned. So here's how I responded to her. I said, thank you for the communication. My consulting practice is not based on traditional best practices. I encourage you to spend some time on my website. Then if you're interested in a conversation, please contact me. Well, that was about five months ago. I have not heard from her. And uh, I suspect the reason for it is if you look on my website, the very first page, I I think I make it fairly clear that I'm about biblical principles of business. And most people I run into that have not been exposed to someone like Dennis uh, have no context in which to understand that kind of framework. So she probably looked at that and said, I don't know what to do with this. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about uh, how I approach consulting comparing it to traditional approaches that are common today. Uh, And so best practices is is probably the paradigm that most practice. If you talk to a major 
consulting firm or you talk to an accounting firm that's got a consulting arm, they will talk to you about best practices. That is the game. So some examples of best practices that um, are very popular today is to be self-made and self-defined. Another example is separation of business and church. Another is pundits and or experience are the best sources of wisdom. And finally, success is measured by money. So now this, this just, these are just examples. There are a lot, you, if you started doing brainstorming and trying to develop a list of best practices, I mean, we could spend all afternoon coming up with best practices. And there, you know, you can Google it on, on uh, the internet and you'll get all kinds of ideas. But I just picked these four because these really relate, I think, to the things that are important for me to be able to serve a client well. You know, a consultant has one thing to offer, and that's wisdom. That's what a consultant sells. And so when you're trying to serve a client, and you're trying to be discerning about who you're called to serve, and you're not being driven by money, but you're trying to discern the will of God, you're looking for someone that the Holy Spirit has, has opened their heart to receive what it is that God has put into you. So as I think about that and I ponder that, I felt like these examples here would be, well, I could play off of these to illustrate the kinds of things I look for when I, when I try to qualify a client. Now, to set this up, um, I want to just read a text to you out of Matthew chapter 15. Uh, I put the whole text up here. We obviously, since Dennis said we have 35 minutes, I don't have time to go through the whole text. But I'll, I'm going to tell you the story and then kind of highlight what I want to focus on. This is Jesus uh, interacting with Pharisees, his favorite people. Pharisees are the religious people of their day. They are the religious leaders, and they are all about form with no internal reality. So he is um, very unkind to these. In fact, if you start looking at how he treats the Pharisees, uh, most professing Christians today would get upset with Jesus because he's not nice to them. He's kind of rude. In fact, he calls them a brood of vipers, among other things. So, now I don't know exactly if that was a cuss word back then, but it could very well have been. But he was, he was that blunt with them. The thing about these people is they want to make up their own rules. So you'll notice, as we'll, we'll read part of this here, um, that some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, which tells you something about how he viewed the Old Testament. It was authoritative. It was his scripture. And he considered it far more important than tradition. Then he goes on and says, But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. In other words, they have decided that their tradition is more important than the word of God. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Ever, ever had anybody call you a hypocrite? that kind of an offensive term to be called a hypocrite? Well, he didn't have a problem calling them hypocrites. 
Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. <clears throat> then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Oh, really? <laughs> they were offended. Okay. He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Now, that's a very startling text. The context is making up your own rules for life. He's saying, when you make up your own rules, that will not stand. That will not endure. So my, my application here is best practices that are not aligned with Scripture will not stand. They will be judged. So what I've developed, and most of you probably know this, is I've developed a model based largely on what I have learned through Dennis. And Dennis and I have been close friends for over 20 years now. And I, have, um, I consider myself one of his disciples. I consider him a spiritual father to me. And I try to be very submitted to him. And listen carefully to what he tells me to do. And to the best of my ability, I try to do it. And so from that, that relationship has come of what I believe is an understanding of how to biblically build an organization. It doesn't matter what kind of organization it is. Any kind of organization can be built with this model. So my book really is all about the Beyond Babel model. And so that's what you see here on the graphic. And the, the thing that I want to focus on today as we think about, you know, walking in this model is that this is not a compilation of best practices from a worldly perspective. Because the only best practices that have value are those that are biblically aligned. If there's no biblical alignment there, then it's not going to stand. It will be pulled up. It will be uprooted. So when you hear people talking about best practices, you need to put your filters on and say, okay, tell me what it is. Can I tie it to Scripture? Is it biblically based or is it just man's effort to make up his own rules? So the Beyond Babel model is not about biblical best practices. It is about alignment with the will and ways of God. That's my, my effort, my heart, my intent with this model. And by the grace of God, it will help you if you choose to use it. So let me talk to you about, about four things that I think are critical for you to be able to embrace biblically-based best practices and reject the world's definition of best practices. Okay, the, I'm going to talk to you about humility, Christ as the holistic foundation of life, the authority of Scripture, and success as obedience. So those, as I meditated on the topic, these are the, the top four things that I felt were essential for my clients if I'm going to serve them with what I think God has given me. So requirement number one is humility. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 is one of those startling texts. Uh, before I read it, let me ask you a question. Has anybody here had a problem with pride? Anybody? 
If you're not raising your hand, you're lying, because we all have a problem with pride. Now, I want you to notice, Peter is writing to professing Christians. He's not writing to unsaved people. This is in the context of a letter that Peter's written to professing Christians who live in, in Asia, and these Christians have not grown as they should. So he's trying to encourage them to grow. So he, he, uh, he is now concluding his book, and this is one of his final key statements of the book here. He's, refer, he's referred to older men and how they're supposed to function. Now he's referring to young men, how they to function. Young men in the same way be submissive. Now, in the same way is a reference to how Christ was submissive. Okay, so Christ is the model. So just as Christ was submissive, you'd be submissive to those who are older. All of you, now he's going to talk about everyone, all of you, young and old, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what he's saying here is if you are in pride, anytime we're in pride, God is our enemy. He opposes us. Yeah, you got to think about that one. Because most of us think God's always on our side. Nope. Not when we're against him. When we're against him, he is opposing us. So the state of humility is absolutely essential. If you are not humble, you are not teachable. If you're not teachable, you will not grow. So as an illustration of this, there's a book that was written by a Dartmouth professor of business. The gentleman's name is Sidney Finkelstein. And in this book, he does 13 case studies in four categories of CEOs that are very bright, but they failed. His question is, why smart executives fail? Why does that happen? And just to summarize real quickly what ha why this happens, he came down to one basic reason why smart executives fail. He said it was hubris. You know what hubris is? It's pride. And it's very interesting to me. I have no reason to believe from anything I've read of Sidney Finkelstein that he's a believer. Or he, Probably a good Jewish man. He might be. But there's nothing that I found in his book that suggests he's thinking biblically at all. He is just looking at the results. So he's looked at these various categories, like new business breakdowns. He, he studied general magic. And that's why I'm just giving you illustrations. He's done 13 case studies. So he does several case studies in each of these categories, failing to, to change J&J &J in the stint business. Some of you may remember what J&J &J did. They had a lock on the stint business, and somebody else came out with a better mousetrap, and they were arrogant about recognizing the reality of that. And so they just sat on their technology and let the other competition go flying right by them, and J&J &J lost their hold in the stint business. By the way, I'm going to make a prediction here. That's what's going to happen to Apple. Okay? And you know why it's going to happen? It's because of pride. You see, Apple has got a great opportunity. They have a great technology, but there's this pride in them. It's manifested by their lack of support of Flash. Because they do not support Flash, that eliminates the, the practical nature of the iPad from reaching a lot of websites. And it's all because Steve Jobs is mad at Adobe. 
Okay? So it's just arrogance. And that kind of thing, that sin there, is going to cause them to wind up in this camp here where the hubris is going to kill them. So, just a prophetic word there. Okay? Short apple. Huh? Short apple. If, if you feel so inclined, I personally, in my, my worldview of investing, shorting things does not fit. You know, I, I think you invest to support. You don't invest to make money. Making money is a, is a side benefit of investing. Shorting is all about making money. Shorting says, I don't believe in you, so I'm going to... I'm going to take a bet that you're going to go down. So, but we don't get into that. That's a separate separate topic. What is the story on Jay and Jay and the sin? Well, they they had a they had the lead. They were the lead people in it, and somebody developed some better technology. They basically came in with a a a, a stent that was uh, you could kind of twist a little bit and it would expand, and it was Teflon coated, so it just it it was better all around. And they looked at that and basically said, our little comp competitor that developed that, don't worry, we'll smash him. Well, pretty soon the doctor started looking at what the competitors were doing and said, hey, that's really better. So they started shifting over. By the time J&J &J woke up, it was too late. too late. They were too far behind the curve, and so they lost the stent business. Then you have uh, the M&A world. By the way, the statistics are that two-thirds of all mergers and acquisitions fail to meet expectations. So those of you that have some exposure to that, you know that's a that's a that is a that's a world of, of pride and arrogance. Very few mergers and acquisitions are really effective. And the strategic errors, uh, Ann Wang uh, got, was mad at IBM. His anger at IBM was worked out, and it eventually sank the company. His pride and his arrogance. All of these are just pride at work. So this is what happens. If you're not teachable, you're not humble, you're going down. It's just a matter of time. All right, so requirement number one is you have to be humble and teachable. All right, requirement number two, you have to be willing to make Christ the foundation of life. That is, you have to be holistic and not deistic. And I quoted Colossians chapter 2 here. Um, and we've already read some of these texts in our prior teaching, but I'll just read it real quickly. My purpose, this is Paul talking to spiritual grandchildren, by the way. Apparently, Paul's disciple Epaphras established this church in Colossae, and Paul is writing to his grandchildren. Wouldn't you like to, like to write a letter to your spiritual grandchildren like this? Listen to what he says. My purpose is that they, that is referring to his, those that know Christ, may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, if you're a consultant, you only the only thing you have to sell is wisdom, and the only real wisdom is Christ. You don't know Christ, and you don't know him well, you don't really have much wisdom. You may have some worldly wisdom at best. Somebody was, I don't think he's in here here, that knows Michael Gerber. Anybody know Michael Gerber? You know, he wrote, wrote E-Myth and E-Myth Revisited and all that stuff. You know, if you've read his books, um, uh, you, you probably know that there's not much in there of any spiritual flavors. It's, it's all just pragmatic. It's best practices from a worldly perspective. 
But the gentleman told me that Michael Gerber's recently started talking about destiny and purpose. I said, really? That's very interesting. Does he have a clue what he's talking about? Does he know Christ? Because if he doesn't know Christ, those words don't really have any meaning. You can't have destiny and purpose without Christ. So he might, by, by the fact he's using terminology that we might use as Christians, that might be a little improvement. But until he knows Christ, he cannot build anything profoundly. He, can, he will not have wisdom that will stand the test of time. You see, the world is all about single-generational living. As Christians, we're about multi-generational living. The only way we live multi-generationally, we have to be built on Christ. That's the only thing that will stand. So Christ is the repository of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one will deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. See, the world is always deceiving us with arguments that sound good. Reading on in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world, rather on Christ. Everybody builds their life on what Scripture calls stokion. That's the word that's translated basic principles, stokion. You have stokion at the core of your being. What is your stokion? Is it Christ or is it something else? Because that's the only choices. It's either Christ or something else. The only thing that's really wisdom, the only thing that's going to work well in the long run, the only thing that's going to endure and be sustained is that which is built on Christ. So that's the point here, is you have to be willing to build everything on Christ, which means you cannot be deistic. That is, you cannot take business and put it over here and separate it from Christ. You have to build whatever business that you're in on Christ, which means you don't buy into the popular, I need to integrate my faith with my work. Have you heard that? That's a very popular way of expressing it today. It's, I think that's the enemy's effort to disrupt the kingdom of God. You don't invite God into your business world. You build based on God. He is the starting point. He's not just somebody you invite in as if, well, God, you really don't belong in my business, but I love you, and I'm going to honor you by inviting you in. Give me a break. The creator of the universe is the starting point. So that's a mindset we have to have. And just to give you an example of this, and I'm going to have to, I'm not going to be able to tell you all these stories because of time, because I was put on a clock. But this is Henry Parsons Crowell. He founded Quaker Oats. And Quaker Oats was a company that was uh, formed in the late 1800s when Crowell, with very clear direction from the Lord, put together a bunch of oatmeal companies into an association that eventually became a corporation. Now, what he did that was so phenomenal is he took horse food and he convinced housewives that it was human food. Very clever man, very creative man. And uh, he was very good at, at bringing everyone together. Now, one of the driving things in Henry Parsons' Crowell life, and by the way, he nearly died from tuberculosis. They called it consumption back then. But when he was a young man, he heard Dwight L. Moody. And this is what he heard. The world has not yet seen what God can do with and for and through and in a man who's fully and wholly consecrated to him. When he heard that, that was in about the 1860s, when he heard that from Dwight L. Moody, he determined in his heart, to the best of my ability, I'm going to be that man who, is, who walks with God 
who God can work through in and for and through. And I want to I want to see what that takes me. Well, do you think he might got, might have gotten tested? Huh? If you if you try to make that kind of commitment to be that level of believer, do you see what what this is saying here? To be so consumed with God where he is filling you up and he is directing and guiding you and you have faith and trust in every area of life. I mean, that's a phenomenal level of living. Well, he walked that out probably as well as anybody I know. Along the way, one of his tests, and this is just one of them, was he had, he had a, a situation in about 1895 where the company did not do well one quarter. And they had a board, and they had shareholders, and they paid dividends and all of that. And there was a man who had been invited into the company who was a snake. And this guy was looking for some way to get rid of Crowell and to get control of the company. So when they lost, when they lost money that quarter, what happened was this man began to poison the board. And the board really didn't understand what happened and why, so they bought into the lie that the man told them. And they got the board to vote to get rid of Crowell, to fire Crowell. Now, if you were Crowell, and you had done all this work to put together this association of cereal companies, oatmeal companies, eventually had, had turned the association into actually merged it all together into one corporation, and you had invited this snake in, but you didn't know it was a snake, to your company because this man was in desperate straits, and Crowell brought him in anyway, so you'd been benevolent and kind to all the people. You had done a great job, and all of a sudden you get torpedoed. You get stabbed in the back. Has anybody had that happen to you? Get stabbed in the back? Nobody here? Come on. We've probably all been stabbed in the back. So he's, he's fired, and his, his CFO, Robert Stewart, is also fired the same day. So here they go. They're, they've been kicked out of this company that they put together and made happen. Now, what do you think they should do? Well, what would you do? Hey, should we sue? Yeah, a lot of people would sue. Uh, how about form a competitive company? We'll go drive them out of business. How about go to the press and badmouth them? Would you do that? See, y'all are y'all are not telling the truth. See, because that's the way we think. Because that's the way the world thinks. What do you think they? He and Robert Stewart did. So, some of you that heard the story, you can't talk. What do you think they did? Go to work for the government. Go to work for the government. <laughs> the company. I'm just thinking of a lot more. What do you think they did? Somebody else. What did they do? They didn't do that. They prayed for the company. That's what they did. Every day, they began to meet and pray. What was the basis of that prayer? Faith that God had called them to run this company. That that was the call of God on their life. That was their destiny and purpose. That God had given them that. And now it had been taken away. And so, Lord, what is it you want to do here? We know. We believe that you've called us to run this company. So every day for a year, they do this and see nothing. Unbeknownst to them, a new board member is brought on board. And this board member begins to ask questions. And he discovers what had happened. The other board members got duped by this man. His name was Ferdinand Schumacher. Isn't that a great name? Ferdinand Schumacher. He had duped them all. And so this, the, the banker's name was Will. Will began to really talk to the other board members and begin to evaluate the company and look at the history and found out really what happened. They uncovered the truth. 
Well, Schumacher thinks he's got control of the company. So he decides, you know, I've got some debts. I need, I need, to, pay off, I need to pay off some of those debts, so I'm going to sell some shares to the company. I will lose the majority control, but I really control the board, so they'll vote with me anything I want. So he, gets, he sells his stock interest down to about 48%. Well, the next board meeting, he was quite surprised because he discovered that the board was not on his side. And so they voted Schumacher out, and they went over that day to Henry Parsons Crowell, who knows nothing about what's going on. He and, he and Robert Stewart are just meeting every day to pray in faith. The door knock, and Henry, we, we're, we want to apologize for what happened. We, we've come to our senses. We realize the mistake we made. We want you to come back and run Quaker Oats. So that's how he wound up back running Quaker Oats. You see, this was a man committed to, the, to building his life on a holistic biblical worldview. When you have a problem, you seek the Lord in prayer. And so he's the one that really established Quaker Oats and made what it is today. Five years later, the Moody Bible Institute is about, about bankrupt. Dwight L. Moody was a great preacher and a lousy administrator. Does that sound like somebody you know? Anybody think of somebody like that? Okay. So they asked Crowell, I said, would you come and run Moody Bible Institute? So Crowell had by then had got the company back and everything was back on a good footing. He had got his management team back together and things were going well, so he agreed to do it. So he, he left Quaker Oats in the hands of his, of his management team and he went over and he turned Moody Bible Institute around, saved it from going bankrupt, and he spent the rest of his days at Moody Bible Institute. In fact, he died going home one day and the way he died is he was, he normally took a train uh, to and from work, so he was and when he, when he was on the train, he read his Bible. So he got the train, got on the train, going home from work one day, and he opened his Bible, and he was reading his Bible, and he just went like this, and he was gone. I told Carol, I said, that's the way I want to die. Yeah. Reading a word and just like that. So here's a man who Christ was the foundation. It didn't matter what the trial was, what the difficulty was. It was always Christ. Christ was the core of his being in every way and everything he did. Okay, requirement number three. Willing to make scripture the handbook of life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I just want to make a note about this word training. It is it's the word that means correcting mistakes and curbing passions. So the implication is this is what discipleship is. Correcting mistakes and curbing passions. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy at a time when the only scripture they have is the Old Testament. That is their scripture. Peter and Paul both, if you look at carefully, they, they derive much of their understanding of Christianity by looking at the Old Testament in light of Christ. So that's called a Christocentric hermeneutic, which I believe is the correct way to interpret scripture. So what he's saying here is that the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, and by the way, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, recognized the Pauline writings as equivalent 
in authority to the Old Testament scripture. So you could say here, this would include the New Testament too, even though it's not had been not been specifically formed. It was in formation. So all scripture is God-breathed, meaning it's inspired of God, and it's useful, profitable. The word profitable is probably a better translation for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that word good work is a word that we don't understand well. It's the word agathos ergon. Agathos is the word good. There are two words for, that are translated good by, in the Greek. Sadly, the English does not always give you a good translation. Um, the word agathos refers to something that's, that's by nature good. The other word that's translated good, good is kalos. That refers to the fruit of something that's good. And the way we see that is in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, A good tree bears good fruit. It is an agathos tree bears kalos fruit. You see that? It's, the, the tree has to be intrinsically good, agathos, to bear a kalos fruit. So this one here is you have to be to do intrinsically what you have been called to do. That word ergon, those of you that have been under some of my teaching know that word. It's the Greek word that refers to work. Now, sadly, many of the translators who have been probably largely dualistic have translated it deeds. So it sounds like you're being a good boy scout or something. No, it's referring to your work assignment. Everybody here has a work assignment. Okay, so Ryan, you have a work assignment. Carol has a work assignment. Don, you have a work assignment. These are assignments that God has given you. They're not self-defined. And so when you say, okay, I've got to get real clear about my work assignment, and I want to do it with agathos, with a nature that is good. It lines up with God. So if I want to do that, I need the scripture to teach me, to rebuke me, to correct me, to train me in righteousness so I can do what I'm called to do. So you have to have the scripture as your handbook in life. Now, I have had some, some very good Bible teachers question that, that the Bible's a handbook. And one conversation I had, uh, the, the Bible teacher said, you know, the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I said, yeah, it is. That's what it is. But everything in life is built on Christ, so I need a revelation of Christ. And so he's fussing about me calling it a handbook for business. And I said, well, if it's not the handbook for business, what is? Now, that, to that he had nothing to say because he had never thought about that. You see, Scripture tells us right here that Scripture has to be the handbook for business because it's what equips us for the work assignment we have been given. So we have to get very clear. If you want to grow up in Christ, you have to have the Scripture as your handbook. So here's a little case study here of somebody that mastered this reality. And I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But this is Marion Wade. Marion Wade was a was saved in about 1930, and uh, he was saved in Chicago under a very famous preacher. He, according to his own pastor, was the model Christian. He taught Bible studies. He participated in all the church activities. He tithed. When the doors of the church were open, he was there. I mean, the pastor thought he was, if you, if you want to know the definition of a Christian, you put Marion Wade's picture up there. He's the definition of a Christian. In 1945, Marion Wade is working. He has a home-based business. They do carpet cleaning and pest control. In 1945, he's in the closet of a house. He is doing some pest moth, moth uh, control. 
and the canister of chemicals that he's applying blows up in his face. He's blinded. He cannot see. For a year, he stays in the hospital. First, he didn't know if he'd live. And then once, once he knew he was going to live, he didn't know if he'd ever see again. Well, while he's in the hospital, he has an, an encounter with the Holy Spirit. That encounter was basically a revelation of his dualism. And how that happened is he started meditating on Scripture because he had nothing else to do. And he was a great student of Scripture. He lived at a time where when you go home at night, you didn't watch TV because there was no TV. What you did is you studied Scripture. Because he was always teaching something. So he was always, every, basically you go home at night, you study Scripture, getting ready to teach your next, next Bible class. And so he was thinking about Joshua 1.8. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. He said, I want to be prosperous and successful. Well, how do I do that? Oh, I've got to meditate on the scripture day and night. So he said, okay, what do I do at night? Well, at night I do meditate on scripture. I sit in my chair and I have my Bible and my notebook and I study scripture. I meditate on the word at night. But during the day, he said... I just run my business like everybody else does. And he thought to himself, you know, where did I get the principles that I used? Well, I'm just using the principles that the world uses, whatever I see working in the world, the best practices out there. That's what I do. And he said, man, there's something really wrong with this. I need to start meditating on Scripture at, during the day at work. And so he asked the Lord, Lord, would you grant me the grace to recover my eyesight and if you do, I, I commit to you that I will, I will run my business based on Scripture. The Bible will be my handbook. Well, the Lord granted the request. After a year in the hospital, he gets out. He, the first day he goes back to, to work. The, they've been working without him for a year. He goes into his home office there. His guys are there. They're all glad to see him, excited. He said, great guys to see you all. I'm so thrilled to be back at work. But you need to know I'm a changed man. I'm not the same man I was a year ago. I had an encounter with God. And I was convicted of my dualism. Now, he didn't use the word dualism. He didn't know the term. But I'm convicted that I am not running the business as I should be. So he grabs his Bible, throws it up on the desk, and said, From now on, we are going to make every decision based on the Word of God. Now, if some of you don't want to do that, that's okay. You're free to leave, but you need to know this is the way the company will be run. Well, that fledgling home-based business that had been in business for 15 years with six employees exploded into what we now know as Service Master because of his commitment to walk out a biblical worldview based on the Word of God in the business. That's the power. If you don't make the Scripture your handbook, you are self-limiting. You could say you're self-defeating. The best you're going to do is a single generational company because nothing will endure except that which is built on Christ. Okay, requirement number four. Success is obedience. It is not money. It is not influence. It is not fame. John 17, verse 4. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. You notice we have our Greek word, aragon, again. You see, this is the general word for work in the New Testament. It's sadly been poorly translated by mo in most versions of Scripture, I think largely because most translators of Scripture have been dualistic. So they have not had a paradigm for seeing work as a holy calling. 
But Jesus is now in his high priestly prayer. He's speaking to the Father. And he's saying that his life has been a success. Now, most of us, success is about money. It's about influence. It's about being famous, particularly if you're a young person. Jesus had sought none of that. He sought one thing, to do what God created him to do. And he knew if he did that well, he would bring glory on earth. He would glorify the Father, and that's what he did. So that was success. And in the end, that has got to be our definition, too. Find what God created you to do and do that thing. And when you do that, then you will be a success. I like to ask the question, is Bill Gates a success? Now, most people will jump all over that and say, well, yeah, he's a success. Well, why? Well, he's got a bunch of money. Or how about Carlos Slim? Who knows Carlos Slim? You know Carlos Slim? You know who he is? Who is he? Most richest man in the world, more than, more than Bill Gates. Mexican, yeah, well, Mexican communications tycoon. $72 billion is his net worth. He's worth $20 billion more than Bill Gates. Bill Gates is now number two. Carlos Slim is number one. Is he a success? Is he? Come on, guys. Is he or not? We don't know. You don't know. Because you don't, unless you know what the call of God is on his life, you don't know. Money is not the measure. Money is simply a tool to do the will of God. Until, when we can get that in our heads, it will transform how we live. Right now, most of us are mammon worshipers, but we don't want to admit it. Most of us make decisions based on money. Everything's about money. We need to get where Jesus lived, which is money was never the, the driver. The driver was always, what is the will of the Father? So you've got success is a key element of this. You've got to get it to where to be successful in life. I know I've got to do one thing, and that is do what God created me to do according to his will and his ways. His will is his specific destiny for you. His ways are the principles of Scripture that guide you into doing his will. All right, so let's just uh, do a little case study here. This is uh, two people. This is Mother Maria Alfred Mose, and this is William. Now, they lived back in the 1800s, and at one point in time, there was a tornado in their community, and it destroyed a lot of property, injured a lot of people, killed some people. Now, in the 1800s, many of you know that hospitals were places of death. They were not places of life. So communities didn't want hospitals because it made them think of death. So this community had no hospital. But they've got this tragedy. They've got a lot of injured people. They need a hospital. So what they did is uh, the city fathers, they commandeered the local dance hall. And they turned it into a temporary hospital. Well, William is a little country doctor. And Maria is a school teacher. But Maria volunteers. She has about 30 teachers that are under her care. They all volunteer and they serve in this temporary hospital for about six weeks, six, eight weeks, as they care for the people that are injured and get them back to good health where they could be released and the hospital can go back to being a dance hall. Well, along the way, Maria got a vision. The vision was we could make a hospital a place of life, which is something most people had no vision for something like that. So she goes to William, and they got to know each other pretty well over this time they worked together, and says, William, we, we, we need a hospital here. You know, and William says, Maria, I love you, but you're nuts. No, no, William, we could do this. We could make it a place of life. It could really bless people. And William says, Maria, do you know how much a hospital costs? 
No. It costs a lot of money. Furthermore, I don't know anything about running a hospital. And I don't know of any hospital that's a place of life. Maria, go away. And Maria would not go away. Finally, William, in desperation, says, okay, Maria, if you can raise the money, I'll staff it. that okay? She says, deal. Now, he didn't know what he walked into. What, what do you think a mother superior with 30 nuns can do when they put their mind to it? Even though they're sworn to a vow of poverty, they go out and they raise the money in five years. Now, how do you think they did it? What? Well, see, we go hire a fundraiser, right? A professional fundraiser to come in and tell us how to do all these campaigns. We'll have a charitable golf tournament. We'll have a raffle and we'll have a race and we'll do all these things and we'll put pressure on people to give. Now, that's what we do today. You know what they did? They prayed. They saved. They took on extra jobs. They cut their expenses. In five years, 39s raised the money to build a hospital. One day, Maria walks over to William's office. Knock, knock, knock. Hi, Maria. How you doing? Well, William, I've got the money. What do you mean you got the money? I got the money. Maria, what are you talking about? I have the money for the hospital. You, 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 you have the money? Really? Uh, are you serious? Yes, I have the money. William goes into a panic. He has no idea how to run a hospital. So he calls his two sons, Will and Charlie. He says, guys, guess what? You're going on a world tour. Go everywhere you can find where there's a hospital that has life in it. And find out what they're doing and how they're doing it. So Will and Charlie go around the world for a year collecting information and data about how to run a hospital. A year later, St. Mary's Hospital opens, and the Mayo Brothers run it. It eventually would become the Mayo Clinic. That came because of people who were driven by the definition that success is obedience. She is the one that's responsible for the Mayo Clinic. She had a vision from God that she could not let go. It did not, money was never an issue in this thing. Fame and fortune was never an issue in this thing. This was all about doing what she felt in her heart God had called her to do. Well, it gets even better. Because now you have Will and Charlie here. And, by the way, neither William or Maria lived to see what they had done. Because the Mayo Clinic, the first few years, struggled. And St. Mary's Hospital struggled. She died in 1895. He dies about five years later. So Will and Charlie are the ones that really developed it. By about 1913, things begin to blossom. You know, 20 years into this, they had worked hard and you know to make this thing work, and they got to the point where they realized, you know, we 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 have learned many things. God has been gracious to us to, to see us through tough times, and we've been able to to really learn how to use medicine to give life to people, how to bless them. We have got to impart this to others. So you know what they did? They gave everything they owned except their houses to the Mayo Foundation. To start a medical school. They did that not only in 1913, they did it again in 1939, right before they died. You see, money was never the game. It was all about obedience. 
She obeyed. He obeyed. They obeyed. St. Mary's Hospital and Mayo Clinic operated together for, for almost 100 years on a handshake. They did not combine until the mid-1980s into the same organization. The Mayo Clinic today is really, that, that organization is really only, what, 25 years old. But the prior 100 years, it was St. Mary's Hospital and the Mayo Brothers operating separately on a handshake. Can you imagine what it was like when they put them together, all the lawyers? What a mess. So this is a picture of success is obedience, doing what God has given you to do, no matter what the obstacles are, what, what they seem to be, because when God wants to fund something, it's not a problem. It is not a problem. We, we get all caught up, well, there's not any money to do that. I don't know how to see how to do that. Well, start praying. Start seeking the Lord, because if he wants it done, believe me, there will be provision. If they can do it, if none sworn to avow poverty can raise the money to build a hospital, do you think there's anything that God can't do? You see, if you don't have that mindset that it's all about obedience to God, you will never be a success. You might make a little money. You might become famous. You know, people might like to hang around with you. But real success is living the way Jesus lived, which is doing the will of the Father. Okay, so let me wrap this up. So your takeaway here. To help my clients to move from non-biblical best practices, that is the rules of men, to biblical, the biblically-based worldview of business, which is biblical best practices, requires at least, now number one, humility. You must be in a state of humility. Number two, you have to build your life based on Christ. Number three, the Bible has to be your handbook, not only for business, but for all of life. We're holistic here. And number four, you've got to define success as obedience to what God has called you to do. So may the Lord give us all grace to live this reality in Jesus' name. Amen.